Take your Bible and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 through 15. And hey, guess what? This is the last uh, section on giving. We've been hammering you on giving. We've been twisting your arm, right? We've just been trying to manipulate you for more money. And uh, no, no more, right? We're, that was just chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Actually, what we're going to do is we'll finish chapter 9 today. Then chapter 10 starts a new section. Uh, we'll start that new section uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, Gobbler's going to be here with us. Uh, next week, here's what I'm going to do. Since we finished this section on giving, and this section was really uh, about giving towards the poor and persecuted Jewish saints in Jerusalem, it really wasn't a church offering or anything of that nature, of such as a regular giving in your church body. There have been questions asking, well, what about this subject of tithing and 10% and giving to your local church? That's not what the context of 2 Corinthians is talking about, but is there anything in that for us? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a standalone message uh, at the back end next week. And the the goal of the message is I'm going to talk about that subject of tithing. Uh, Don't worry, it's not going to be the arm-twisting kind. It's going to be, one, I'm going to give you a history of tithing of that idea uh, through the history of the church, all the way from the apostles. Then also we're going to look at how that system actually worked uh, in Israel. And then we'll, I'll discuss with you the major different views that exist um, here today. And then you'll have to be an informed study of Scripture. I'll tell you, I'll show you kind of where I have uh, landed. So I think it'll be very helpful. Uh, my goal is to give you almost really a systematic look at this subject matter um, and don't worry, it's not going to be an arm twisting. It's not going to be um, one of these things where it's like God will curse you if you're not tithing kind of message, right? It will, it will not be that. Okay, would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word? We'll be in chapter 9, verse 1 through 15. If you've, uh, we, I think you should have maybe, there's been uh, an outline of the notes passed around. If you, if you don't have that, I'm, I'm sure you raise your hand. I'm sure we can get that around to you. I think they've been passed around. Uh, a 10-point outline. You might look at that and go, a 10-point outline. Nick, how are we ever going to get through that? By God's grace. <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 1. And the title of our message is The Pathway to Godly Prosperity. The Pathway to Godly Prosperity. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 15. Here's what the text says. And I'm using the legacy standard uh, version here. This is what I'm reading from. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brothers in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared." Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, be put to shame in this certainty of ours. So I regard it necessary to encourage the brothers that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised blessing, so that the same would be ready as ready as a blessing and not as a begrudging obligation. Now this I say: He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. But each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace abound to you so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship towards them and toward all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, Long for you because of the surpassing grace of God on you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Can we ask God's blessing over this? This is a difficult text because it, it has so much euphemism terminology that really describes finances. But different words like gift and grace um, and service are used different different words to describe the aspects of what this big offering but this whole chapter is talking about a big offering that was that has been gathered especially by the churches in the region of Macedonia the region of Achaia for these poor suffering persecuted and famine in need saints in Jerusalem let us capture the principles of this of a Godly prosperity. Let us capture what you want the original, what you meant for the original recipients to understand in Corinth, and then let us make that jump of application today that we could glorify you, that your name could be lifted up. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Okay, if I ask this question, you don't have to answer it out loud, but you may think it's a trick question. Do you want to be prosperous? Do you want to be prosperous? Now, when I ask that, probably you're thinking in your mind, if I say out loud, yes, everybody's going to think I'm greedy, all right, or that I just want money, right? So let me give a better definition. Do you want to be financially prosperous? At that, some people may go, well, I don't know if I want to say that because then I, that still could look greedy. I, like, Nick, what do you want from me? Okay, let me define it even better. Do you want to have a godly prosperity? Oh, now that's totally different. Did everybody say amen to that one? Now, we may not, at this point, you may not understand what is meant by the word godly prosperity, but you probably have some ideas. But that's why we have chapter 9. Chapter 9 helps us understand this idea of what is godly prosperity. Now, just to kind of give you a little insight, godly prosperity is really, in the end, godly prosperity is where life, is about the glory of God and the glory of the gospel. That's godly prosperity, which may contain some financial prosperity for you. And then sometimes it may not. But in the end, godly prosperity is what we're shooting for. Now, God's not against people being wealthy. If you have wealth, God has, there's tons of people in the scriptures that have wealth. Few people can actually take wealth. It's true. You know, I had a friend one time that asked me and said, why aren't all Christians wealthy? And I said, well, 
There's lots of reasons, but maybe one reason is not everybody could faithfully serve God. It would maybe, maybe it might be too much of a test for some to be wealthy. And his next response was to look up into the heavens and say, God, test me. But not everybody can take it. Not everybody can take it. But what we're looking at today is this idea of godly prosperity. And what did Paul want for the Corinthians in this situation? He wanted godly prosperity for them. So you have an outline, 10 kind of insights into godly prosperity from the text. Now, just to kind of help, because this maybe was a little bit confusing to read, and maybe if you're new or didn't hear previous messages, here's the background as we're going through this. Paul is gathering up this big offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And these saints in Jerusalem are primarily Jewish. It's the mother church. It's the first church. It's where the gospel started to spread right at Pentecost. So there's, a, there's this indebtedness that all of these believers in the Mediterranean area, especially in the province of Macedonia and Achaia, they owe this spiritual debt to the saints in Jerusalem. And they're primarily Gentiles. The saints in Jerusalem are primarily Jewish. And so Paul's gathering this big offering to bring relief to these Jewish Jerusalem saints. But at the same time, it's going to show the wonderful unity the gospel has brought. That Jew and Gentile are on level, on, on level ground before the cross. It was going to bring this amazing unity that if you know anything, that, that the, Jewish, the, the Jewish people did not mix with the Gentile people. They were, lived separate lives. But the fact that these Gentiles were going to be gathering this huge offering to be supportive of these Jerusalem saints, these Jewish saints, it would bring great unity. It would show these Jewish saints that, that the Gentiles are, have accepted the same gospel that they've accepted. The same Jesus that died for their sins is the same Jesus that died for the Gentile sins. So it was a wonderful, big offering. It was important. But if you've been here for some of the series, we remember we discovered that, that some things have fallen off with the Corinthians. They... That some false teachers had come in and told the Corinthians lies about Paul. So they dropped the offering. Although Paul had encouraged them to do this offering before. Now Paul is reviving. And we discovered last week that he's sending down three guys to kind of gather up that offering. That ultimately that Paul and at least those three guys potentially. And there's some others that would eventually make their way back to Jerusalem. Um, by the way, in my message last week, I, as I was listening to it, I almost... Sounded like I was trying to make it sound like Paul wasn't ever a part of the offering getting to Jerusalem, but he still was, right? But he brought along extra people, these three brothers we talked about last week. There's some reasons for that. But in the end, this big offering was going. Now, what Paul had done is he'd sent Titus and two other brothers that were not completely sure who they might be. You read, But if you read Acts chapter 20, you may have... Some, there's, there's about eight different people that you can read about, and maybe it's, it's potentially one of them. But nonetheless, the, the deal was this. They were going to go to, while Paul was in Macedonia, and just written this letter, Titus was going to deliver it. He, he wanted Titus and these two other men to go and gather it up. So that when Paul came down to Corinth, there wouldn't be any embarrassment, right? Because the Corinthians, they were people of more means and wealth. And when they had made this, Paul had been bragging to the Macedonian Christians up in the Macedonian area about how generous that the Corinthians were going to be, how generous the region of Achaia was going to be, how generous they were going to be. And and Paul was concerned that when he came down to the Corinthians, if 
Titus and these other two men didn't come down and, and, and finish out and gather up this offering, that there could be an embarrassment on the Corinthians' part. They had made this bold declaration in the past of what they were going to be given, what they were going to give to these poor saints in Jerusalem. So there's a lot of things that are going on here in this text. But ultimately, I want you to see is this. As we go through it, you see some principles for a pathway to godly prosperity. And in the end, that's what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. Paul just didn't want their money. He wanted their hearts. God wanted more than just their resources. He wanted their worship. And in the end, the end is that Jesus would be glorified in all this. But there are some principles on the way that I think are helpful. That whether you're talking about giving through your local church, whether you're talking about giving through missions, or you're talking about this as a particular gift that's being taken up for the poor saints in Jerusalem, however you want to do it, this is a great passage to kind of look at true prosperity, godly prosperity. So let's start off in chapter 9, and we'll go verses 9, 1 through 5. If you have an outline, the first point is the pathway to godly prosperity prepares for giving internally and externally. Prepares for giving internally and externally, right? That's point number one. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. He says, for it is superfluous. Isn't that a word we use all the time, right? Isn't that like your common vocabulary? Yeah, that your word of the, the word of the day, right? It's, so he says, for it is not superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. This word superfluous, it's the idea of it's, it's not extraordinary that I'm going to tell you this. It's not out of the ordinary or extraordinary. You've already promised that you were going to do this. I'm telling you about it, but, but I, really, I really don't have to because I know this is going to come because God has laid something on your soul. And there's a godly prosperity that's running through you. So he says... Uh, in verse 2, for I know your readiness, Corinthian church, of which I boasted about you to the Macedonians. Now remember, the Macedonians, that's a region north, which were actually a little bit more in poverty, right? They were north. They were the northern province of, of where Corinth was. Where is Corinth? It's in the southern province of Achaia. He says that Achaia has been prepared since last year, which include the Corinthians, and your zeal stirred up most of them. Now, if you remember... The Macedonians were kind of the, the poor hillbilly type, right? right? If I, I'm just trying to use wording that we would all understand. It would kind of be like, well, that's where the people that may not have as much resource. And then you have the cosmopolitan Corinthians in Achaia, right? They're the ones that seen of more resources. Notice he says, the Macedonians who didn't have much since last year, your zeal, I've told them how excited they, they, that you were you, you Christians in the region of Achaia, especially you, the capital of Achaia, Corinth, your zeal for this offering stirred them up. Then he says in verse 3, But I have sent the brothers, this is Titus and the two other guys we talked about last week, in order that our boasting about you may not be empty in this case. Paul said, I don't want us to show up and you don't, you're not ready to give this offering. So that as I was saying that, you may be prepared. I want you to be prepared when I come down. Verse 4. Lest if any Macedonians come with me, and there we're going to be come with, with Paul, and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, be put to shame in this certainty of yours. Paul said, I don't want you to have egg on your face, basically. I don't want you to be embarrassed. You, I boasted to all of them about what Corinth was going to do, the region of Achaia was going to do for this offering. When the Macedonians come with me, when I collect the final offering from you, I don't want you to be embarrassed by this. 
So I'm sending these men ahead to remind you and to gather it up for when I come. Verse 5. So I regard it necessary to encourage the brothers that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised blessing so that the same would be ready as a blessing and not as a begrudging, begrudging obligation. Notice those two words, begrudging obligation. What does that sound like? Well, that's something internal, isn't it? If you have a, a NASB, it says the word, um, it says affected by covetousness, right? So the pathway to godly prosperity, there is this preparation internally that needs to happen. And what Paul is telling them is, you've said you were going to give this offering, you purposed it, but just in case your heart isn't right on this, just in case there you are affected by a covetous, greedy desire, just in case you're... You want to keep resources for yourself because you ultimately don't trust God's godly pathway to prosperity. I sent them to remind you. Just in case, in my LSB, it says there was this begrudging obligation. Have you ever gave and you didn't really give because you wanted to give? You just gave because you felt a begrudging submission duty to give. Now, let me ask you a question. And this is not a trick answer. Is that fun giving? Isn't that miserable giving, right? To let loose of your resources and be in pain the whole entire time. We will not be on the pathway of godly prosperity if there's not this internal work going on inside of us. And by the way, I think it's good to give. I think it's, it's not only biblical, but it hurts us, right? It, it strikes at us. It, it lets us, because every time you give some kind of generous resource... It lets you know the temperature of the inside, right? If, if, you, if you're writing a check or you're giving in whatever way, right? And as you do it, if there is a joyousness to your soul, then guess what? You are walking in what I would say a godly prosperity in the moment. But if there's a begrudging submission or if it's like, man, I got to give because, you know, poor Pastor Nick, he's going to lose 100 pounds if I don't give, Right? I mean, you know, that, that, that's like a begrudging submission. Or, man, if I don't, if I don't give, you know, we're, we're never going to be able to finish this auditorium. Do you understand that begrudging submission? Begrudging obligation. I'm sorry, not submission. Of course, submission is not to be begrudging either, right? But that's another message. But notice on number one. The pathway to godly prosperity prepares for giving internally. And then I said not only that, but what? Externally. Now, it's interesting. If you were to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul had already before encouraged them not only to, to get ready for this externally. I'll read it for you. Paul had told them in 1 Corinthians about this gift. He says this. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, these Jerusalem saints, here's what Paul said. As I directed the churches of Galatia to do, you also, for the first day of the week, which was Sunday, the Lord's Day, right? Resurrection Sunday, when the church in Corinth met. For the very first day of the week, each one of you is to set something aside, saving whatever he has prospered, so that no collections be made when I come. Paul had already said, externally, prepare for this offering. Systematically, each week when you come together, systematically as you get paid, that you set something aside. Be ready for this offering. So that when I come, what you had pledged to give, I'm, we're not over here trying to scramble or 
I'm not trying to twist you or you're not giving out of some begrudging obligation, but you're giving out of, hey, I have systematically, externally put this offering aside week by week and we're ready, come take it. It's a big offering, take off with it. The pathway to to godly prosperity involves not only this internal work, but an external work. You know what's really interesting? Do you notice that almost everything in life is set up to automatically happen, right? Most of our bills are paid automatically, right? We go in, we set it up, and it happens in execution way, right? Or actually, a, a lot of your bills, they don't, want, they don't want to send you a statement in the mail anymore, and they don't want you to write a check. What do they want? They want your bank card information, right? So that they can capture that and they can pay the bill. Do you ever notice how they, they kind of go like, would you like the convenience of us, of us just automatically drafting this out of your account, right? By the way, I don't participate in those, right? I just don't trust people taking money out of my account just whenever they want to, right? It's, it's easy to get them on your account. It's kind of hard to get them off your account. But our whole society is set up for that. For the most part, we're somewhat comfortable with that. But we're not comfortable when it comes to giving like that. A lot of times we think, oh, well, the way I give in life is I just kind of wander around and... Whatever I feel like giving, that's what I'll give. Paycheck by check, paycheck, week by week. And remember, I'm not talking just about church. I'm talking about all of life, right? This generosity. And I would say, if you want to be on the pathway to godly prosperity, there's an internal work that has to happen, then an external work. Which means there is some systematic way you've purposed in your heart that you want to give. And those who systematically, purposefully give in that way are the ones that put themselves on the pathway to a godly prosperity in their life. I can remember when I first became a Christian, my youth pastor taught us to do tithing. And we'll talk more about that next week and discuss all the different arguments and for and against. We'll look at that. But one thing I did notice is that he trained us that when you get paid, before you pay anything else and you do anything else, you give to the Lord, right? And what did that set up? I remember doing that. And there wasn't much heart behind it at first. It was just, okay, externally, I just did it. But then through time, there, you know, there began to develop this internal thing where when you saw at the end of the year, you get a statement. I love seeing the end of the year statement because on average, you know, I don't, you don't have that much cash around. But when you get to look at the very end of the year, you're kind of like, whoa, how did that happen? Only God could do that, right? And then you get to like start praising him. But the pathway to prosperity, to godly prosperity, involves the internal and the external. And I don't know why we resist the disciplined, systematic giving, but we'll do it in every other aspect of life. But that's what Paul had already asked them to do. Now, the fact that Paul sent these three guys down there ahead of him coming to collect that offering means that they had probably fallen off some of the systematic giving. And by the way, this is how all giving in life works, right? If, if we wait to be generous after we paid all of our bills, it, there's usually not generosity behind it, right? We do that on the very front end. And I'm, I'm, that could be many different areas. Now look at point number two, the pathway to godly prosperity. By the way, aren't y'all glad y'all came to church today? Amen? Man, man, we love talking about money. You know what's interesting? You can be generous. You can, you can be um, ungodly and generous with money. You can. You can be ungodly and give generously and not love God. 
right? You can be like, man, I love God, but I'll just give, right? But you can't love God and not give. Let me say that again. You can be an ungodly, unloving person and be generous and give, but you can't be a loving person, a godly person, and not be a giver. So he's, so there's an internal work that has to happen. Now let's look at number, point number two, the pathway to godly prosperity. Point number two says this, we must not give sparingly. We must not give sparingly. Look at verse six. Now this I say, he says, he who sows sparingly, who puts the seed in the ground, toil, you know, um, prepares the soil, puts the seed into the ground. He who sows sparingly will also reap what? Right? And he who sows with blessing will also reap what? Blessing. There's a principle that runs all throughout Scripture that if you don't plant, you can't get a crop. If you don't sow, you can't reap. This principle, he's letting them know and say, Corinthians, there's a reaping of blessings. And by the way, this could denote financial blessings, but also blessings of so many stripe and sort. For instance... I'm not saying this all the time, but I will say this. Um, As long as I've been a Christian and been in pastoral ministry, I've seen so many people that were so disciplined in their giving, right? And I don't know that from records. It's what they would share with me. But here's what I've noticed. That sometimes, that like a lot of times when giving is sacrificial, let's say for the person who goes, I believe I need to give 10% at least. um, And they do that systematically. They've done that their whole life, right? You know what I've noticed with those people? Sometimes those people, because if you take 10% of your income, that's a, that usually affects your lifestyle, right? Amen? I mean, for the most, that's typically going to affect you in some way. Those tend to be the people that don't get as, as distracted with the toys of life. They tend not to have those extra resources, and they tend to keep themselves closer to the Lord. Sometimes the very giving that you're doing may be protecting you from some things because you don't have the disposable cash. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have toys, but I am saying this. I have noticed it's hard to have excess and love God appropriately. You have to really work at it. So he says this, there's blessings. There's blessings. You know, there's some people that have been so generous in their giving and the blessings that God has given in that is that God, that God has protected them from decisions that they would make in life. If they would have had those resources set aside, they would have used it for ungodly means. Now, that's not all the time. But he tells them, if you don't sow, you don't reap. So you can't expect a blessing if you don't actually do something with it. You've got to scatter the seeds. You've got to give. By the way, this is a principle all throughout Scripture. It is. It's a big principle. By the way, just to kind of encourage you, and this kind of applies even off the idea of money. Um, in life. Anytime we sow, we will reap what we sow. So let's say if you're here today and you're kind of like, okay, Nick. I know every week we take communion. I can't take it because I'm unforgiving of people. And I know it. And I want to take communion, but I can't because I am so bitter and angry. And I just can't take it communion before the Lord, right? But man, I keep going to the Lord. I keep confessing my sin. I'm trying, I'm trying to rely, I'm trying to forgive as Jesus has forgiven me. Are y'all, y'all tracking with me? You get the idea, right? And then the thing you might be saying is, huh, will this ever end? Can I ever take communion again? Can I ever do it with a, with a clear and clean heart? Can I ever do this? 
And here's what I would say. You will reap what you sow. You keep sowing the seed of forgiving before the Lord. And you'll reap blessed benefits of it. Galatians 6, 8 through 9 says this. For the one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap, what does it say? Corruption, right? But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now the text of here is sowing to the Spirit, you reap eternal life. But there's a principle all throughout Scripture. What you plant, you will get a harvest. Now I'm not telling you give so you can give a lot of money back. What I'm, what I'm telling you is what the principle of life is where you make the consistent giving deposits of life, you will reap the consequences of it, and that can be a positive, not just a negative. For instance, if you're a person who daily has this discipline of time before the Lord, time in His Word, a discipline of prayer, a discipline of fellowship with God's people, a discipline of gathering with God's people, a discipline of confessing sin, that person will reap the benefits of that over the long term, right? That person will have a transformed life. That person will grow better and not bitter. But the person who doesn't spend time in the Scripture, doesn't pray, doesn't spend time with God's people, and, you know, if they, if they catch a service, it's going to be, it's, it's not going to be, it's going to be a rare thing. They kind of enjoy the, the Lord's gathering on like, you know, Easter and Christmas. That person is putting together another resume as well. And when the day of struggle comes, they're not going to pass the test very well. One is on the path to prosperity. The other is on the pathway to godly prosperity. Because we always reap what we sow. That's not just, that could be a negative thing, but that can also be a positive thing. Like if you're here today and you're saying, man, I'm worshiping the Lord, I'm trying, I'm trying. Don't lose heart. Every bit of spiritual vigor that you keep applying and doing, every bit is going to do something, right? Don't give up. It's not time to give up. Sometimes people think that, that spirituality is something that you just... It happens like ordering, ordering a Happy Meal through McDonald's, right? You don't, it doesn't happen that fast. There's a watering and a planting and a watering. But if you've ever planted a garden, it's pretty magical, right? You plant that garden and all you do is water and, and you cultivate, you do all you can. And you can walk out there and look at the garden and go, say, grow. Will that happen? No, but then one day you start to see something. And you're kind of like... I can't believe this. Look, and you and you know at that moment that was not you that did that. They may have been you. That might have been you that tilled the soil, watered it, but it wasn't you that did that part. And you know it. And you realize like something divine has just happened. My garden is starting to prosper. Yeah, that's what God does. Every bit of spiritual, every bit of spiritual effort you're putting in right now, hang on. There is, a depo- there is a wonderful reaping that is coming as a result of that. Every bit of forgiveness, every bit of trusting the Lord instead of worrying, every bit of sacrifice, every bit of saying no to sin, every bit of resisting temptation, every, result, every time of resisting lust, every bit of generosity, every bit of prayer, it will pay a dividend. Do not grow weary. The principle of reaping and sowing is true. It will bring a godly prosperity to life.
Okay, we better get going here. Point number three. Y'all be like, man, Nick, you're through two. Come on. Okay, just hang with me. We're about to go through a couple faster. By the way, just to let you know, when the, during the Puritan times, right? I mean, if you preached two hours, they'd be mad at you, right? It, the, the average time was like seven hours, right, in, in church history, right? So, I mean, you know, I'm just saying. Okay. Number three, the pathway to godly prosperity must predetermine beforehand what to give. Must predetermine beforehand what to give. At 7a is what we're looking at. Look at verse 7. Each one must do just as he has what? Purpose in his heart, right? Purposed in his heart. That's what my LSB says. That word purpose right there, when you look it up, it has the idea of predetermined beforehand. Which this is part of that systematic thing that when Paul had said set it aside, there was some either percentage or some, the Corinthian people had determined some amount that they were going to give. There was something predetermined. They were, that was how they were systematic with it. The pathway to godly prosperity is a predetermination beforehand what to give. Now, that doesn't mean God can't lay more on you, or that doesn't mean you can't adjust it. If you lose your job, then you adjust it. But there is something unique about saying, I've looked at it. Here's what God wants me to do. I'm going to give, thus saith the Lord. There's something special to that. Now, we'll talk about tithing next week and stuff, but here's one thing I will say, whether you believe in it or not, and we're going to discuss that, but here's what I have noticed, that the ones who have given the most systematic in their life and saw the benefits are ones that did have some kind of goal or percentage or something that they were shooting for, right? They predetermined, they purposed. Now notice it says this, each one must do as he purpose according to Nick. Is that what it says? Thus saith Nick. I mean, if that's true, I just want to tell you, Jesus loves $100 bills, right? No, as he's determined in his heart. As he's determined in his heart. That'll play a big part in, in what we'll talk next week. But have you gone to the Lord about what he wants you to give in all from missions to the poor to your church? Predetermined, purposed in your heart. Number four, the pathway to godly prosperity also that you must not give with internal pain. Aha. You must not give with internal pain. What's interesting, look at seven B. It says, for, remember, we just read 7a, each one must uh, do just as he has purposed in his heart. Then he says, not what? Not grudgingly. What does that word grudgingly mean when you look at it in the original languages? It has the idea of pain and grief and sorrow. It has the idea of, as I give this, I'm thinking, okay, like, mm, I just hate that this is, like, this just hurts, ugh. Like, I could do something else with this. Do you understand the? it's this internal pain? I know. None of us in this room have ever given with any internal pain. But that's what he's saying. Not grudgingly. By the way, here's the, here's the, the benefit of, of making sure that it's from a worshipful heart and that there's a systematic plan, predetermined thing, is that you don't struggle with that as much when you start doing that. It's it's not as begrudgingly, right? It becomes something that your soul is used to. You're used to the rhythm. Number five, 
Hey, look at this. We're on number five, guys. See, you didn't think it. I, look how fast I just went through those last two. Shame on you for your lack of faith. Number five, the pathway to godly prosperity must not give because of external pressure. 7C here. So he says in seven, in verse seven, like I read already, verse seven, purpose in his heart, not grudgingly. And then it says, or under what? Compulsion. That word compulsion has the idea of pressure, right? That they're pressured. That's why Paul sent these three guys ahead. Paul didn't want to show up in Corinth and arm twist and pressure them. You remember this gift that you gave? Like, give it right now. He didn't want to have to do that, nor was he going to. But he was going to give them an opportunity by giving them a chance ahead of time to pick back up and be ready. But not out of some external pressure. Listen, if I or us elders ever come and arm twist you for money, please admonish us, right? I give you permission. Hopefully that's never happened in our church, never will. If some nonprofit, some great organization or missionary or anybody tries to arm twist you and try to, tries to finagle you out of money, please admonish them and please don't do it. God does not want you to give out of begrudging submission. God does not want you to be hassled over it. Now, true, when you read the text... Paul has no problem saying, be generous as you have purposed. You said you're going to do this. Let's fulfill the commitment. This has a purpose in God's plan for the gospel. That's not compulsion. But this idea of pressuring people, manipulating people. The pathway to godly prosperity must not give because of external pressure. Here's a question to ask. Is our giving in life out of this compulsion? Do you feel pressured to give it or else even this do you give it because you're afraid god will strike you dead i had a guy that one time told me he gave because he didn't want god to strike him with lightning i mean now where he got that idea that was i I don't know but you know when he asked me what should i do i was like keep on giving brother right no (laughs) i was like how much you give it no and i said like dear brother Please stop giving that way. That's not the pathway to a godly prosperity in life. So number six, number six, the pathway to godly prosperity must give with hilarious intent. By the way, you notice it's not all homiletical and stuff, hilarious intent. That might be like, why in the world did you pick that word? Hilarious intent. Does that mean when we walk in, and if you're like a paper person, you're dropping a check that you should just laugh out loud, hysterical, like you're in some insane asylum. Well, if you'd like to, I mean, I think it'd be pretty cool. Let me get my phone. I'd love to make a video of it, right? It'd be kind of cool. Or, you know, because you can give online, you know, we're so high tech, right? That you can give online through our website. Does that mean when you hit the send button that you should, you know, you know run, around the, run around your house and, you know, hoop and holler? Well, you can do it if you want to, right? Once again, take a video. Please send it to me. Here's what it means. Look in 7D. For God loves a what kind of giver? Now, it's interesting. That word cheerful, the Greek word for that is hilaros. Hilaros. Where do you think, what word does it match that we have today that it comes from? Hilarious, right? 
hilarious. That's why the, the point, there's a reason why I said we must give with hilarious intent, which means cheerfulness, joy, overflowing. I think we got to do this. We got to, when we give, here's what's really great about systematic giving. You do it, it's good. It's really good to be systematic in your giving. But one danger is, it can be just something you just do, right? And you miss the joy and cheer, the hilarity of the moment. And the next time you drop something in those boxes or you're someone who, who does automatic bill pay or you go online, before you do that and just try to mark it off your checklist, take a, t- take a moment and just praise God that he gave you the resources at that moment to contribute. Or if you're giving to missions or you're giving to a family that's in need or you're giving to the poor, in that moment, don't just give it and just walk away and just go like, well, I just checked the box. Give with hilarious intent. Thank Him. Praise Him. It's only by His good hand that you even had those resources to begin with. There will never be a pathway to godly prosperity unless there is some some cheerfulness in your soul. Is is it making sense what I'm saying? Now, look at now point number seven on your outline. Look at this. I've got 25 minutes left, right? Look how good I'm doing. Man, God is so proud of me, right? So I'm just joking with you guys. Sorry, I shouldn't have done that. All right, verse verse uh, 8 through 11. Now it takes a little bit different. Um, verse, verse 11, it's almost like in verse 11, he hits fifth gear, right? He's been going on gear one, gear two, three, four. When do you hit fifth gear? Yeah, when you're ready to get after it, right? Wait a minute. We don't even have standards anymore, do we? They're all automatic. I don't even, that's a bad illustration, right? Um, I can't think of another one, right? But he's changing gear. I, that's all I've got, guys. So he's changing gear. He's hitting fifth gear here, right? He's about to go really fast. It, it takes a decided turn. Look in verse 11. Uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 8. He captures something that I think some of us don't identify, but boy, he does a great job. This is point number seven on your outline. The pathway to godly prosperity must trust that generous giving will not leave us penniless. Will not leave us penniless. You know, sometimes we struggle with being generous because we wonder what happens if I lose these resources and I can't maintain the same lifestyle I'm accustomed to. You know, it's actually easier to be generous when you don't have that much because you honestly don't have much to lose. But when you start prospering in some way and you get accustomed to a certain style of life, it's hard to continue to be generous at the same level when you had nothing. When you look at statistically, statistically, the more in our country, the more a person makes percentage wise, the less they actually give. It's really hard. So he identifies something I think is really key. That, that you must trust that generous giving will not leave you penniless. So you look in verse 8 through 11. Let me show this to you in verse 8 through 11. He says this. And God is able to make every grace abound to you. Meaning, Corinthians, you're, a wealth, you're, a wealth, you're wealthy compared to the Macedonians. And you're... 
the size of your offering, although theirs is greatly sacrificial for what they have, the size of what you're giving is astronomically big, right? It, that's why we looked last week, the word used for it was a word of thick or fat. This Corinthian offering was big because they had a lot more cash. And the thing that the Corinthians could think is, wow, that seems a little over the top. What happens if we're missing those resources? And God is able to make every grace abound to you. You're going to be okay. That's what he's telling them. You're not going to be penniless. And if you were, God is still good because his character is good. And God is still good because the work of the cross has shown you that God is for you, not against you. He says this, so that in everything at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance of every good deed. Now remember, it's, it's kind of, it, it's, it's not saying exactly like, oh, you're just going to grow more wealthy because you gave Corinthians. But he says, this doubt that you have, that you think you're going to be basically in our terminology penniless, that you're going to miss it. Trust God with those resources. Trust what God is going to do with those resources. But don't Hoard it and hold on to it thinking, what if I lose my lifestyle, right? What about the guy who had a lot and he said, I'll just build more. And what did God say to him eventually? You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Now look at verse 9, what's interesting. He quotes from Psalm 112.9 and it says this, As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now here's what this means. In Israel, God had set ways to take care of the poor, right? You remember the Old Testament law that when it came to a harvest, right? What did you, what did you do with your field for the poor? Yeah, you left the edges so they could be gleaned, right? There were special offerings to help the poor. God had to set in a system that could help take care of the poor. So everybody in Israel knew this. God cares for the poor. God has a system to take care of the poor. He gave to the needy. His righteousness stands forever. God takes care of the poor. And his point of saying this is, just as God takes care of the poor, and you know it, and you know God's going to take care of the poor through your offering, and you know it, don't doubt that he's still not going to take care of you. You, can, you must trust God and not think that, what if it happens to me? What if ha- what's happening to the saints in Jerusalem happens to the saints in Corinth, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Well, here's the thing. And I tell people this all the time. We don't live in the land of what ifs. We don't live in the land of what ifs. What if I don't have this money tomorrow? What if I give this money and I need it three years from now? God, what if? God never gives you grace to deal with the what ifs. He gives you grace in the moment if those what ifs were to happen. But God doesn't want us wondering and worrying about the future. There's enough evil for today. God wants us being faithful where we're at today. And he's trying to get into this idea God has set up a system to take care of the poor. Do you not think he can't take care of you? So the pathway to godly prosperity is you've got to trust and be generous and not think that you will be without. Look at verse 10. Because verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He will take care of you. But not only that, Corinthians, more than this, he will multiply that seed. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll grow more wealthy, but it does mean that that investment that they made will pay huge dividends. And, old friends, it did. Verse 11, he says, 
in verse 11, you will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. Paul says, here's something it's doing. God is being more praised as a result of your offering. There's something special about that. And now we're getting to the idea of really godly prosperity, even getting closer to the idea of it. Look at the next point, point number eight. The pathway to godly prosperity, point number eight, we must know that God's glory will be more known. God's glory will be more known. Look in verse 12 through 13. He now, I guess if we're using the car illustration, he hit fifth gear. Now he hits the nitros, right? And he kind of jumps up. If you don't know what that is, I don't know how to help you, right? Verse 12. For the ministry of this service, by the way, that word service right there is the, is, is the Greek word liturgia, which is the word we get liturgy from. So the ministry of this liturgy, right, is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgiving to God. You see that he said the word thanksgiving to God again? He just said it in verse 11. He says it in verse 12. Because the proven character given by this ministry, the ministry of what they're giving to the Jerusalem saints, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession. They will glorify God. Thanks will be given to God. Thanks will be given to God. Do you see this? The pathway to godly prosperity, point number eight, we must know that God's glory will be more known in our generosity. God is more praised. The, the Corinthians' gifts are not only that, but it's causing the Jerusalem saints to glorify God even more. Not only that, when you look in verse 13, for your obedience to your confession and the gospel of Christ and for your generosity of your fellowship towards them and toward all. He basically says, these Jerusalem, Christ, these Jerusalem saints, they are emboldened when they see that your profession in, in Christ matches your possession in Christ. And you don't love just the world, but you're willing to use the resources of the world to be a benefit for the glory of God. God's glory is being more known. His glory is spreading through more of the earth. Where is true godly prosperity experienced when God is more glorified? Man, if you've been a Christian for years, you've been giving money to missions. You've been giving money to the church. You've been giving money to the poor. You may not be able to see it, but someday I hope you can see it. God has been glorified. His glory is being raised up to the nations. And there have, been, there have been centuries and decades of work that people have been investing that are paying off now. People are coming to Jesus at breakneck speeds around the earth just from the giving of generosity to missions. And what has happened? God's glory is more known. This is where giving is fun. When we are generous, the opportunity for God's glory to be spread is more and more possible. And that is the kind of prosperity that's worth something. That's the kind of prosperity that means something. When, the, when these Jewish Christians got this offering right, and it began to supply their need, they all of a sudden realized the skepticism we had towards these Gentiles is different. And then all of a sudden, we now, they, other churches start to hear about, wait a minute, look at this work that God is doing. These people who'd never met these saints in Jerusalem from such a distance are giving to them generously. It, it, it evokes the praise of God. It evokes the, the pleasures of God. It evokes this idea. Like every one of these Christmas boxes, right, that a kid opens up, 
there's the opportunity that God will probably be thanked and praised and glorified and his name be, more, be made more known. And I'm telling you, for our account and your account, that's a prosperity that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, listen, we can go to Chick-fil-A on Monday and it can be God's chicken. And we can, we can buy those Chick-fil-A meals. And in the moment, my family is going to be thankful because they love Chick-fil-A. Thank you, right, when you spend that 40, 50, 60. Y'all know what it means, right? I mean, like, it's just like, man, why does chicken cost so much, man? I thought this was your chicken, Jesus. Multiply it, right? But I'll tell you what. It's, it's awesome to hear their thanksgiving because they're so thankful when we do that. But you know what's really awesome? It's the thanksgiving that goes to God that keeps paying dividends that never stop, right? When we go through a Chick-fil-A, they're thankful. The thankfulness of that, I mean, I've never had the next day, and maybe, have you ever had your kids, you took them to Chick-fil-A on a Monday and Tuesday morning, you see them, and the first thing they go is, thank you for taking me to Chick-fil-A last night. Because the thankfulness kind of passes. But not God's thankfulness. Not the thankfulness that others are going to pay to him. That's great, true prosperity. God's glory gets lifted up. People come to know Jesus even more. And now we end with point number 9 and 10. The pathway to godly prosperity, we must know that the prayer of the poor is a reward of the rich. I don't have a lot written under this point. I just want to tell you that. Look at verse 14. And that's not my idea. This came from John MacArthur. Look at verse 14. While they also, the poor saints in Jerusalem, look at this. By prayer on your behalf, long for you because of the surpassing grace of God on you. So basically, the rich Corinthians are giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And what are the poor saints in Jerusalem doing for the Corinthians? What are they doing for them? What are they doing for them? Woo! This is great prosperity. The prayer of the poor is the reward of the rich. There is no greater reward true prosperity than when people start to pray for you. There are some things in our life, like many of us don't even know, that we are being held together by the prayer of God's people. Even if you're here and you're kind of like, man, my, or you're online and you're like, man, my health isn't what it should be. I can't move around and do what I used to be. Yeah, but you can pray. And the prayer of God's people have a tremendous impact. In fact, I am convinced. I've been here since 2012. I have had several times where I just was wondering, like, man, can I even keep doing this here, right? This is, I mean, any pastor has doubts, but I do know this. There is a, there has been a multitude of people who have prayed and prayed and prayed. God's prayers have held up. That's a godly prosperity. And now here's the last thing, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his, what does it say? Sunday school answer. Who do you think he's talking about? Jesus, right? We got the one, the one person that knows. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Godly prosperity, true prosperity, leads all the way in the end to not only glorifying God, but in the end glorifying God's great plan and God's great person, Jesus Christ. All this offering that's being taken up, that's going to be delivered, all the godly prosperity that the Corinthians get to enjoy as a result of that, all the prayers, all the making much of his name. In the end, Paul says, this great gift reminds me of the gift of God's Son. It's the indescribable gift. It's the gift 
that keeps on giving. It's the gift that keeps forgiving. It's the gift that gives you eternity. It's the gift that gives the Holy Spirit to you. It's the indescribable gift, right? It's that great big gift, godly prosperity. If you're not in Christ, if Jesus is not your Lord and King, I feel sad for you if you've got hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in the bank and you don't have Jesus. You are a pauper. You are poor. And the best life you'll ever have is this right now. But the greatest life to come are those who have this indescribable gift. And I hope you have it. Would you stand to your feet and let me pray for us? So our musicians come. What we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to pray. I want to pray a, a prayer of salvation in case you're here and don't know the Lord. We're going to sing a song, take communion. Then we're going to each grab a chair or two and take it to the, the ministry center. Would you pray with me over this? If there is somebody right now, Lord, who's got all these gifts and got all these things, but don't, does not have Jesus, the indescribable gift, show them their sin, convict them, show them how they've broken your law, they've lied, they've dishonored their parents, they've desecrated your name, they've lusted, they've murdered in the heart, God, show this person that you died for their sins and can give them your righteous life in return. Thank you for saving me at 16. I want to pray this prayer for you. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, pray this. This is a prayer that I prayed similar. You can pray it in your own heart if you mean it. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I have broken your law. I have rebelled against you. I have this stain of sin all over my life. Thank you that you lived a perfect life. You never sinned and qualified to take my place and suffer my wrath and judgment. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for raising from the dead. I trust you as my Lord and Savior. Come into my life. Let me follow you and obey you the rest of the days of my life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, would you please let someone know before you leave this place would you let me know and now let's sing to the lord and we'll take the lord's supper together